0: Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ presence in Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community.
1: Isaiah fourteen one through nine. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity; accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will not say. We will say no more. Our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They will flourish like the grain, they will blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what do have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The word of the Lord.
2: Thanks be to God. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and start working through the text. Lord God, thank you for your word. As we come as your people to your word, uh, overcome whatever there is in us, in me, that would lead us away from your word, that would lead us away from what your word calls us to, but enable us to see clearly and to respond as those who have embraced your covenant from the heart, as those who are your people, uh, to what your word calls us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now. In the book of Hosea, you have sort of an analogy being made with the prophet Hosea's life to God's relationship to the people of Israel, and you you see this dynamic happening. Um, Abby and I have started watching through the show Parenthood again, Uh, and late in that show, a tension develops in one of the marriages, Um, and it's not a tension because someone is being unfaithful. Uh, What has happened is in um, one of the the schools the kids are involved in, there's another parent that has begun hitting on the wife. And she knows that if she tells her husband that this guy is hitting on her, he's going to want her to not be involved in that anymore, but they kind of need the involvement in this school for where they are in life and so on and so forth. And so she's rebuffing the guy, and she's telling the guy that's hitting on her that she has no interest in him, and yet she's not being honest with her husband that it's happening. And so over time, you begin seeing this like buildup And this problem, and that you you have this just ongoing sense of just like, just be honest. Just say what's happening, and the the problem goes away. Uh, You you see this a little bit, uh, Shakespeare does this in a number of places. I'm thinking most specifically about Much Ado About Nothing. But he'll have like, man one falls in love with woman one, and man one is afraid to tell woman one, so instead he asks man two to woo woman one for him. And you kind of have these weird, so there's, uh, let's see, in, in Much Ado About Nothing, Don Pedro, the prince is wooing the female lead Hero on behalf of Claudio. But Hero, obviously, is falling for Don Pedro, not Claudio, because it's Don Pedro that's wooing her. And you're kind of like, well, wait a minute. If Claudio would just tell her what's going on, and so you have this sort of like, well, come on, this is, this is obvious. The, the thing to do is just to be honest here. And yet Israel doesn't do that. And so I've got kind of two different, we, we talk about the, the fallen condition focus of a text. Uh, that every text is given to us to address something about our fallen condition. And I see two different addresses, and the first one that we're going to take up with the, the first portion of the story is the fallen condition focus for Israel, which at this point is an apostate church. It's a church that it has the outward symbols of being connected to God, and yet it's living in apostasy. It's not connected to the the worship center of God in Jerusalem. It's it's set up alternative uh, centers of worship. And while it is outwardly proclaiming itself to be the people of Yahweh, it's living like the nations. And so Israel is not embracing the beauty of God's covenant. And so we see in chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea this story about Hosea and God marrying a good Jewish girl. And so the first portion of our, our time is going to be looking at aspects of those first three chapters in this story about Hosea's marriage to a good Jewish girl. And I'll explain that in a second. Um, first of all, though, looking at the first verse, uh, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now to set up a time frame for this, uh, we're looking at 750 and on into the 600s BC, and the the period of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's the, what what is frequently done in the Old Testament is they'll give you who's king in the Northern Kingdom and who's king in the Southern Kingdom, and you can kind of plot those two together and figure out approximately where this is happening based on who's, who's reigning, uh, you, you know, because there's overlap in different different reigns. The issue is that Jeroboam kind of the last great king of the northern kingdom dies in 750 and that's almost the same time that Uzziah comes to the throne and so for Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah to be the kings we're covering a long period here we're covering a period of more than 50 years but we only have Jeroboam in the northern kingdom well that's because in the 30 years following his death the northern kingdom goes through six kings and the fact of their going through six kings shows you the, the depth of the political instability. It's not just that they happen to have a lot of kings that come along and die of natural causes and the crown goes to the next person. It's that for this period of the northern kingdom's history, the person who kills the king gets to be the next king. And they have six political assassinations in 30 years. Like That's, that's an enormous level of instability. And what's going on in Israel is this is the period where they're, they're losing their control. Uh, Amos, that we looked at last time, not last week, was speaking to the northern kingdom at a time when the northern kingdom was powerful. When Jeroboam, the, the great king of the northern kingdom, was able to, to project a lot of power around him and made it a good time for the people of Israel. Now, though, we're, it was a good time economically. It was not a good time spiritually. And now we're beginning to see God using the hammer of Assyria as he begins to dominate and, and punish the Northern Kingdom for their sins. And so here's chapter four, verse one gives us a picture of what life in the Northern Kingdom is like at this time. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery. Now, we hear swearing, and we probably think something like using four-letter words. Uh, what it's referring to here, though, is false oath-taking. They're taking oaths, and they're having to take oaths because they're not trustworthy, and then they're not keeping their oaths. It goes on, they break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Basically, it's, it's laying out the, the, the what's called the, the second table of the law, the, the second section of the Ten Commandments that deals with our relationships to each other. And it's saying all of those relationships are being disregarded and broken. All bounds are broken, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. It's a dark time for the northern kingdom. And God is using Hosea to explain this experience to the northern kingdom. Why is it, after economic power and prosperity, they're falling into vassalship. And they're falling into times of what we might call recession in in ancient world terms. Uh, verse chapter one, verse two picks up. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomar, the daughter of Didliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now I titled this section Hosea and God marries a good Jewish girl. That's not what verse 2 sounds like. Take for yourself a wife of whoredom. Now, what is commonly set up, a, a normal way that we interpret Hosea, is that Hosea is instructed to marry a prostitute. But I'm going to argue against that perspective. Uh, I don't believe that that Gomer actually was a professional sex worker at the time that Hosea took her as his wife. Uh, that's because the, the word, the, the Hebrew word that is used there, is the word for fornication. Now, in the, um, let's see, which is it? It means prostitute when it's used in the feminine participle. It's not being used in the feminine participle here. It's being used in one of its other, you know, verbs can take a lot of different forms. Uh, This is just a normal verbal form. And in that case, it can mean, and this is a, a dictionary definition that's drawn from other uses, it means fornication of a sexual, international, or religious nature. Uh, It can be applied to fornication where I have a treaty with this country, but I'm pursuing treaties with these other countries that bring me into conflict with this treaty. It can mean fornication the way we typically use it sexually. Uh, It can mean I am sworn to this God, and yet I am following these gods. And so it, it covers all of that. So we're probably not actually seeing a picture here of Hosea being told, go and marry a prostitute. He's being told, go and marry someone that would be expected to be a good Jewish girl to do what is expected of women and wives in Jewish culture. But what is going to happen is that God is using uh, Hosea's relationship as a reflection of his relationship with the people of Israel. Because we start seeing that God is using language to refer to his relationship with the people of Israel that refers to them as a husband. God is going to be the husband to Israel. And the picture that we're seeing is that when God called Israel to be his bride... There was no reason to assume that Israel was the worst of the nations, was, was worse in their behavior than the other nations. We're told that they were least. We're told that they were a small nation. and It's not that God was attracted to Israel because of their power, but it's not that he was saying, I'm going to find the worst of the nations. He's, rather, he's using Israel to drive out and destroy the Canaanites, who are at, at this point at kind of a low point morally among the nations. But the idea is that God calls Israel to himself into a, a husband and wife relationship. So he went and took Gobar, the daughter of Bildim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, Jehu was the person that God used to punish Ahab's dynasty. Ahab is this sort of Earlier low point in the period of Israel where ahab uh, if you 're familiar with biblical history, Ahab marries Jezebel and Jezebel is a major uh, pagan uh, worship promoter in Israel and we see this sort of like moral low point in the way that the the northern kingdom's dynasty functions and so God raises up Jehu to punish and wipe out that dynasty, but Jehu sort of goes crazy, and Jehu tries to not only like stop ahab and stop his sons but anyone that like ever was anywhere near any of the sons of ahab jehu also takes out and so there's this enormous bloodshed and it's it, it's a case sort of like what happens with assyria god says to assyria i'm going to use you to punish israel and assyria goes too far and so god says okay i'm going to knock you down god uses jehu to punish the line of ahab and jehu goes too far and so god is saying i'm going to have to punish this but it continues she conceived again and bore a daughter. Now notice a difference between verse 3 and verse 6. Uh, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Bildam, of, of Bidliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. But then we see in 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. The him is missing. It's not saying that this daughter is not Hosea's daughter, but it's not certain that it's Hosea's daughter. Gomer has fallen into adultery. And so from this point forward, the children that she's bearing to uh, Hosea, we don't have specifically attributed to being Hosea's children. Because if Gomer's not being faithful to him, we don't know that the children produced are actually Hosea's children. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, we're seeing here a a distinction being raised in the way God is going to treat the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he's starting to say at this point, the northern kingdom has ignored God's call to them. God called through Jonah, God called through Amos, God calls through Isaiah, God calls through all of these prophetic voices telling the northern kingdom, you're ignoring my covenant. You're pursuing things that are destructive. You're pursuing things that hurt you, and I want you to follow me, and they're ignoring him. And so he's beginning to tell the northern kingdom, I'm going to differentiate between you and the southern kingdom, and there's going to be consequences to your ignoring the covenant. He continues, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And again, she didn't bear to him a son. She just bore a son. Again, the, the fragility of the marriage is in view here. The uncertainty of what's going on, the lack of faithfulness going on. She conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Now, think about the, the impact of this. God is, it, it, you know, just for one part. God is saying to Hosea, I'm going to make your marriage a picture of my relationship to my people Israel. Kind of really stinks to have to be the prophet that God has called to this role. Uh, but then as this relationship is going on, these, the names he's saying, call him Jezreel for I'm going to punish my people. Like I'm, I'm purging, I'm cleaning, and that's going to be an uncomfortable and a painful thing. And then call them no mercy because I'm not going to have mercy on my people anymore. And so the analogy between Hosea's marriage and God's marriage to Israel is is in trouble. Uh, And when she had weaned no mercy, then she's told to call the, the next child, not my people, for you are not my people anymore. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel both northern and southern kingdom, shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up for the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, he's beginning to set up a new section. Uh, in, in English, we set the, the break at 2 verse 1. Uh, in Hebrew, the break actually happens right there at verse 10 of chapter 1. In your, if you're looking at it in your Bible, it's usually going to be laid out versified, like it's a poem from this point forward. And it it is becoming a more formal language, but the formal language that it's taking on is legal language. And it's taking the actual form that a divorce proceeding would take. But this introduction to the divorce proceeding in verse 10 shows us that more than a divorce divorce proceeding, it's more like an intervention to avoid a divorce proceeding. But as Hosea is delivering this oracle to the people of Israel, we, we see the versification go poetry. They see, whoa, this is a divorce proceeding. God's starting to talk about divorcing us on, the, on, the, on the, the heels of this statement, you are not my people. He's getting ready to break off the marriage. And if you're Israel and you are married to your God, Yahweh, the personal name, the, the name of, of intimate connection between God and Israel, this is going to be a scary statement. Uh, he goes on in chapter 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to my, your sisters, you have received mercy. Here again, he's setting up for them. I'm preparing to initiate divorce proceedings, but there's a different possible end. There's a different future that's possible here. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore; she who convinced, who convinced them has acted shamefully. For she said, "I will go after my lovers, and I will give my bread like in my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink." There's obviously, the, you know, there's trouble in paradise. God is saying to Israel, "I'm not going to tolerate what you have been doing. I'm not going to tolerate you ignoring and hating." Look, look at how the the last verse there. She said. I will go after my lovers who bring me bread and water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel is identifying with its false gods because that's the major, while with Gomer, it's other husbands, uh, it's other men. With Israel, it's false gods. And Israel is falling into the idolatry of the ancient peoples. Now, that the nature of paganism, particularly the nature of animism, where you, you have gods of you know this people or that people, this physical feature, that physical feature, this land... Uh, the, it's not that they just had some weird idea that they needed to make sacrifices. It's that they believed that the gods exercised power. And if you wanted the things that the gods could give you, fertility of your land, fertility of your children, uh, if you, you know, wealth, uh, prosperity, safety, if you wanted those things, you had to figure out which was the right god that you needed to appease. And once you'd appeased that god, things were okay. And so Israel is saying that she will go after her lovers, other gods, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. This is Israel that had been guided through the wilderness and fed manna that God caused to fall on them. This is Israel that is connected with their history of watching their ancestors sustained by. And you know These are stories that are replayed and, and worked out in the culture through their, their, their um, uh, liturgical season. Year after year, they keep seeing God's provision and care for them. This is Israel that God leads into Canaan to wipe out the Canaanites and miraculously defeats them to make clear to them, it's not your power and your strength that's doing this, it's my power and my strength, and yet Israel is saying, we're going to go after these other gods because we want the security, or the fertility, or the wealth, or whatever it is that they provide, we're going to pursue that with these other gods. And God is saying, what, how have you missed this point? In verse 16, talking about this potential future, a positive future, a good thing that Israel could move towards, He says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Now, the the word Baal is not a personal name for the false gods of the Canaanites. Uh, The word Baal is similar maybe to, in English, you could say lord or master or owner or even citizen. Um, It's a term that could be applied to the the lord of a city. Um, in In a formal sense, if you've ever watched uh, you know movies that are uh, about historical periods i remember we were watching john adams and i said to abby because john and abigail are addressing each other as mr and mrs adams so i said to abby like wouldn't it be funny to talk to each other as mr and mrs bishop you know like instead of honey or abby you know oh, mrs bishop was telling me the other day well if 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 you're going to talk that way it would be appropriate for a woman to call her husband Baal. it's it's a formal and and very like uh, you know distant uh, respectful address but you'll notice if you're, if you're following along, in verse 16, this gets confusing in English because we don't write out Yahweh, but you'll see that in verse 16 where it says, in that day declares the Lord, and Lord is all caps, uh, when your Bible puts that all caps in, it's what's called the tetragrammaton. It's the, the Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh of the Hebrew alphabet that we interpret to, we don't know what the vowel pointings are, so we don't know quite how to say it, but we think it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. And so we have here, in that day declares Yahweh, again, covenant name is intimate name, a name that's not revealed to everyone. And yet God has revealed his covenant name to his covenant people because he's entering into an intimate connection to them. In that day declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Now some perverted genius in Israel had figured out, well, wait a minute, the the other nations are using this term Baal for their gods, and it we could apply that to God. And so we can look more like the other nations while we're worshiping our God, kind of doing the same things that they're doing. Because it's, it's easy for them to conceive of a God that like, if I make you happy, you'll give me the things I need. And so we can treat God this way. And part of the idolatry he's calling them back from is not just going after the other nations and worshiping false gods, but it's worshiping him as though he's like them. As though he's a God that you placate so that he'll give you the good stuff. And so this statement that's being made here, that it's, you know, God in his covenant name says to his people, in the day when you actually respond and embrace the covenant, you will treat me intimately. You will speak to me by my intimate name. And you won't use this foreign, distant, Mr. Adams, Mrs. Bishop sort of way of addressing me anymore. That Israel has taken on so that they can look more like the other nations. Look at two... 17 for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall remember be remembered by sorry and they shall be remembered by name no more and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground and I will abolish the bow the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this is a picture that he is holding out to Israel as what the relationship could be like, as God is pursuing Israel as a husband pursuing a wife. What we see in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, is we're, we're turning back to what's going on in the life of um, Hosea and Gomer. And now the problem is some commentators get a little confused here and think that a new woman is being introduced. But if you've got a certain number of characters introduced, and the storyteller doesn't make a point of saying, oh, and we're bringing in this new character, because he starts talking about love a woman who is loved by another man. And because she's not named Gomer, some commentators start getting confused and going, "Well, we're we're producing a a new character. Well, if you've got a character coming in that looks just like the old character, but the storyteller hasn't set up, this is a new character, it's probably the old character that it looks like. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, we read, The Lord said to me, Hosea talking, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Uh, if you, you know, like raisins in your bagels or you like oatmeal raisin cookies, uh, raisins actually are just kind of a preservative. Bread doesn't get stale as quickly when it's got raisins baked into it. But in the context of ancient Palestine, they were making these raisin cakes as part of their worship of the Baals. It, it was kind of like we take bread at the end of the service. They had some sort of similar ceremonies that used raisin cakes. And the people of Israel were adopting those ceremonies as a, as part of how they were worshiping false gods. So, if, if you like oatmeal raisin cookies, it's no problem. That's not a, a sign of um, of adulterous uh, uh, worship in our culture. But <coughs> they turned to other gods and, and they love cakes of raisins. So I brought for I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and an omer of and an omer and a lethek lef, of barley. Excuse me. Um, what we're seeing here is that Gomer's adultery has gone so far that she's gone to live with another man and that that man has some sort of like legal claim to her such that in order to redeem her, Hosea has to go and pay 15 shekels of silver plus barley and what else? An omer and a leketh of barley for her. He's actually taking his wife who has borne him multiple children that he doesn't even know if they're his. And has walked away from him to pursue other men and now is actually in some sort of legal connection to another man. He is gone and he's paid money to get her back. And 15 shekels of silver is a significant amount of silver. It's not an, an insignificant price that he's paying. The interesting thing, though, is in the economy of the day, a good servant could be bought for 30 shekels of silver. So this other man that he's having to redeem her from doesn't even value her as much as a decent servant. He's valuing her at half that rate. And yet, Hosea is redeeming Gomer. He said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. But the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And he's, he's naming the elements of false worship of the other gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord, to his goodness in the, la- in the latter days. Now, what we see happening here, going back to that fallen condition focus, Israel's unwillingness to embrace the beauty of God's covenant, we talked a few weeks ago about where, where is the prophetic voice speaking to the church? Because we see in the New Testament the words of Hosea being applied to the church at times. And we might say, you know, in, in apostate churches, in churches that have abandoned the teaching of Scripture, uh, that have abandoned their first love, if you will, there's a call there to apostate churches to return. There's also a call to apostate individuals. When you look at the contents of your life and the way you're living, are you living in a way that is a betrayal of your baptism? In a way that is saying that your baptism doesn't matter? Um, there are believers that are, so think about idolatry, and I think there's a, a useful connection between the words idolatry and addiction. And in some ways, all sin is addiction. You know, the, the idea in sin is, God has this good thing for me, and I'm going to go find something else to take the place of it, because I think that something else is going to give me what I need. And that's what addiction does to us. Addiction takes us over because I'm, I'm trying to fill an emptiness and I just need more and more and more of the thing that I'm addicted to even though it's hurting me in order to try and fill that emptiness. If we're wallowing in addiction, if we're not fighting against it, if we're just leaning into it, that's an apostate place. And... A passage like this, if you see that in your life, I, I am giving into, whether it's you know a recognized thing that our society calls an addiction or something that you're treating like an addiction, I'm giving myself to this because I'm pursuing it as I should be pursuing God. This is a call to the beauty that God has in his relationship to us. Uh, Hosea is willing to pursue his wife, Gomer, who has shacked up with another man. She has such little regard for her relationship to Hosea, and he redeems her back. God pursues us as people that constantly pursue idolatries, that constantly pursue addiction, that constantly pursue other things, and has given himself in order to call us back. I'm going to reference a Derek Webb song here. Um, Derek Webb was a a Christian artist that I really enjoyed. Um, He was unfaithful to his wife, uh, their marriage ended. Not long after that, and examining f- his faith, th- th- and this sounds in some ways a lot like if you, if you follow Josh Harris, the guy that wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Um, h- his marriage ended, and shortly after the marriage ended, he kind of goes, well, maybe it was all a charade, and so he walked away from the faith. Uh, Derek Webb now runs wh- something he's calling a ministry because kind of that's how he processes and that's how he thinks of his work, but he doesn't believe in God anymore. And it's a ministry helping people kind of process their deconversion. That's living in an apostate place. That's ignoring the the beauty and the goodness. You know, okay, my marriage fell apart, and so maybe my faith is falling apart. No, dude, your marriage fell apart because you were unfaithful to your wife. That's not God doesn't work and your worldview doesn't work, that's you were unfaithful. If that's where we find ourselves, that is what this passage is calling us to, is showing us the length and depth that God is willing to go to to redeem sinners and call them back to himself. Now, at the same time, I think there's a a second fallen condition focus that we need to to take into account when we see a prophetic book talking to the church when the church is apostate. Uh, Derek Webb wrote a song called Wedding Dress, and he's kind of processing the story of Hosea, and this is back during his believing period. And so the, the words to the song go, I am a whore, I do confess, I put you on just like a wedding dress, and then I run down the aisle. And he's talking about our ongoing unfaithfulness to God. Now, I would actually say, while well, I liked the, the corpus of his work, apart from, and it's a beautiful song, but um, that's not a faithful way for the church to read Hosea. Because the book of Hosea being is written to an apostate church. And when we're talking to the people of God, We still have sin in our lives. We still wrestle against sin. But there's a difference between wrestling against sin and living in apostasy. Turning away from my faith, giving myself to whatever the the addiction is that is going to, to take the place of God in my life, despite my baptism, despite my connection to his church. That's the people of Israel in the Old Testament that Hosea is directly writing to. But the church that is saying, I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation, I am wedded to Christ, and even though I fail and I am sinful and I continue to struggle with sin, I am going to pursue that beauty, that picture that God has redeemed me, that God has drawn me to himself, and now Gomer, the other side of the redemption, uh, that where, where Hosea says to Gomer, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so, will I, so I will also be with you. And the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar. Without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Uh, We need to realize the beauty of God's covenant and embrace it. As God's people who are united to him, that are not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done, made his faithful bride as a community. We need to see and love the beauty of a God who is willing to go to those lengths to pursue us and to reclaim us. And then as the community that seeks faithfulness, we need to be this picture to the world that Israel was supposed to be, of people that love each other with that kind of love, that care for each other with that kind of love. Um, I I think the... uh, the picture of this, and I'm not saying this for those of you who th- who had to work and therefore weren't able to be involved. But on Thursday, several of us got to participate in the Touchdowns and Move, and I love getting participate. I love getting to participate in moves because moving is such a traumatic experience, and there's so much work involved. Like as a family, you can't do it by yourself. You need the community to come around you and carry you through that. And as the church, the 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 idea of moving people in and moving them out helping them through this yeah it's probably the, the equivalent of like a, a barn raising in past centuries this is a task you can't take on with the resources in your household this is too big this is too great and the church can come around each other and help each other and love each other through things like moves through things like child care through things like struggling with infertility through things that, you know f- through all of the ways that we confront things that are bigger than us that are a larger task than we can take on, the church comes around us. The passing of the peace is us symbolically doing this, ministering the reality that God is the victor over death, that God calls us into this beautiful covenant. The the passage that I had Janine read to us to begin with, and I'm not going to work through exegetically, but is this picture of the future that God is holding out to Israel. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, except what is good. And we will pay with bulls and vows of our lips. Now, they're not saying we're going to offer bulls so that you take us back. They're saying now that you've taken us back, we're going to enter into correct worship. The prophets weren't crying out against worship. Uh, You know, coming together on Sunday to worship God as the corporate community, to come together around the sacraments. These are good and useful things in our lives. There's, there's in our culture an attitude that sort of says, "Well, well, formalism is bad? Formalism shapes what happens outside of that. The prophets weren't telling Israel, "You've, you've taken on the formal and what you need is the, the real and the relational." They're saying, "No, the formal flows out of the relational." And so as you return in faithfulness to God, take on those formal things that make the, the relational and the informal real to you. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely." my anger has turned from them jumping down to verse 8 oh ephraim what have i to do with idols it is i who answer and look after you i am like an evergreen cypress from me comes your fruit so when elf white and you probably don't know that name because it was the, the pen name of elf white is james harriet but if you're at all familiar with the um, uh, all creatures great and small novels uh, it's this beautiful picture of life in the yorkshire dales for a country vet and, you know, there's these heartwarming stories about caring for cuddly little animals, and you know. Um, so when Alf White, who is the actual James Harriet, wrote the first book, it was a, a relatively short book that involved maybe like five or six chapters of these sorts of stories. And he gave it to an editor. The editor read it and comes back to him and says, basically there are two p- types of fiction. There are romps and there are worlds. A romp is something that's like fun and enjoyable and you want to read through it and get through it as quickly as you can to get to the point. Uh, And then there are worlds where you have created a world that the reader wants to enter into and just bask in. And they said, you have created a world. This is a beautiful world that your readers want to be part of. And so we need the book to be much longer so that they can't get into it, get five chapters in and be like, that's all you got. So they actually made him go back and write like he had to basically double the book before they would pick it up and publish it. Because they said, this concept, you need a world that the reader is going to bask in, needs to be how how you sell this book. Uh, That's what we're in, in the church. We're in a world. It's a beautiful picture of God redeeming a people to himself, and loving us, and caring for us, and calling us to reflect that love to each other. And a passage like Hosea says to us that we are to be this picture of beauty, of people embracing the covenant from the heart and helping each other to move forward in that embrace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as your people who need your faithfulness placed into us perpetually, continually, who need the reality that you are the God who is willing to, like a husband pursuing an unfaithful wife, go and redeem us, that you have called us into loving, intimate relationship with yourself. And that in that loving, intimate relationship, you have called us to be this picture of the beauty of your covenant in the midst of the nations. Enable us by your sacrifice. Enable us by your pursuit of us. And enable us by your filling us and meeting us and giving us the means of being those who would actually embrace your covenant being a community that can extend grace to each other that can love each other in the midst of difficulty make us those who can serve as your signpost of your glory in the midst of the world we pray it in jesus name amen Uh, we're going to sing again in response Uh, christ is risen he is risen indeed let's stand together and sing